We're going to jump into our study, and we're working our way through the life of Jesus across the four Gospels, and the four Gospels are the four books in the Bible, in the New Testament, that talk about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as we meet Jesus this week, we meet him as a preteen. He's 12. He's probably in puberty. He's in an awkward stage. And this is the only account of Jesus' life between the events of the Christmas story and the beginning of his ministry around the age of 30. This is the only glimpse that we get in that entire span of time, about 27 years. For the first time in the life of Jesus here on the earth, we hear Jesus speak and his words are recorded. And that's going to be incredibly important for our study today. It's going to reveal what drives Jesus. It's going to reveal his identity, his purpose, his motivation, and what his mission are all about. We're each going to be challenged with the huge question, who is God to you? Who, who is God? When you think of God, how do you picture him? What do you think he's like? So why is there only one recorded incident from Jesus' childhood? And the reason is not quite as conspiratorial as you might think. You might be like, because they buried it and they passed it down through secret codes and it's buried in exotic buildings all over the world. It's, it's not really that. It's because there's nothing to write about. There's nothing to write about. His, his childhood was pretty much completely normal. Uh, well, how normal? And we've talked about this before. So normal that when Jesus starts preaching that he's the Messiah, he's the son of God, his own brothers and sisters don't buy it. They're like classic firstborn, classic oldest child, thinks the whole universe revolves around him. Of course he does. Of course Jesus would think that. They don't buy it. There were no childhood miracles, and anything you've ever heard about those are basically from fictional tales that people wrote that have no credibility, and people get excited about them because they're old, and it's like, well, people wrote junk in 100 AD just like they do today, but we get excited when somebody wrote junk in 100 AD and buried it in a field, and we dig it up, and we go, it's old. It must be true. Gossip's been around forever, and lying and fiction's been around forever. There are no childhood miracles and we actually know this because in the bible in the gospel of john it tells us when jesus does his first miracle in cana where he turns the water into wine it specifically says this was the first miracle this was the first sign there are no flying pigs nothing crazy like that going on it was the first miracle jesus wasn't a, a, a like a superhero who had to learn how to tame his vision you know, there, there was never a night when Mary and Joseph were, you know, sitting around the kitchen table going, we got to get this laser vision under control. He's killing too many innocent people. You know, like we've, we've got to help him get a handle on his abilities. You know, that, that never, ever happened. It wasn't like an out of control superhero thing. He's just normal. And, and one of the most radical claims the Bible makes about Jesus is that he never sinned. He never did anything wrong. And, and you might be thinking, well, well, how can you be that way? And have nobody notice? Have, have nobody notice? Well, when you think about it, to, to really grasp that, you would have to be with Jesus 24 hours a day, and you'd have to know his thought life as well. So, so nobody thought it was unusual that he didn't sin when he was with them. You know, if you and I have a conversation during the day, I don't walk away and say, wow, I don't think he sinned once during that entire conversation. Maybe he's sinless. Maybe he never sins. None of us ever think that. So everybody just assumed that Jesus was sinning somewhere else with somebody else at another time. Nobody had any idea that he was completely sinless. Only God the Father knew that. 
The Bible also tells us that Jesus grew up with at least four younger brothers and two younger sisters, and that his family was part of the working class, which at that time was more like the working poor. They weren't very well off. And last week in our study, we found out that there was this psychotic evil king named Herod the Great who wanted to kill Jesus when he was a baby because he viewed him as a threat to his rule. So God tells Joseph, Jesus' foster dad, through a dream that they need to flee to Egypt. And based on the timeline the Bible gives us and the death of Herod as recorded in history, it was probably around two years that they spent in Egypt that would line up as around 4 B.C., when Herod the Great dies. And so God says, come on back, make yourselves comfortable. And so they come back to Nazareth and they make themselves comfortable in Nazareth and start settling down. So from the age of about four years old and on, this is Jesus's childhood, just normal, living in a hick town, bit of a redneck, working poor, brothers, sisters, normal, nothing exceptional. So let's set the scene for today's study. Jesus and the family are headed to the big city of Jerusalem, which is the the religious and cultural center of Jewish-Israeli life. It's where the temple is. It's where everybody goes. And they're there for an annual eight-day celebration and feast called Passover. This was an annual event. It happened every single year, and and every able-bodied male was basically required to go there. So Joseph's got to go there, so the whole family goes with him. And Passover celebrated a special time in Israel's history when God supernaturally freed them from slavery in Egypt. And I'll give you the super fast summarized version. Through a series of events, the Israeli people, the Jewish people, end up in Egypt. They start having a ton of kids. They're blessed. Everything's going well for them. Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians, looks around and says, like, they're, they're starting to outnumber us and Sooner or later, we're just going to be removed from the picture. This just isn't going to work. So he goes to work sort of enslaving the people and oppressing the people. And they worked incredibly hard. They worked almost to the point of death. God picks a man named Moses to be a savior to his people in Egypt. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, you got to let my people go. Pharaoh goes, ha, 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 no. Not going to do it. And so God says, okay, let's give them some motivation. And so God starts sending these plagues to Egypt. You've probably heard about them. All the water in the entire country turns to blood. There's a plague of frogs, a plague of locusts. There's boils. It gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. Herod says, okay, you can go. Then he changes his mind. Finally, God says, listen, we got to take this to the next level. And God says, this is what I'm going to do. Going to send the angel of death to Egypt. He's going to kill every single firstborn son in every home in Egypt. But he tells the Jews, he says, But here's what you need to do you need to go kill a lamb and paint with its blood across the top of your doorframe on your front door, across your doorpost. When the angel of death sees the blood of the lamb over your doorpost, he's going to pass over your house and your son will be spared. And this is all pointing prophetically to Jesus, who the Bible also says is the Lamb of God, whose blood saves us. So this is a picture that God is creating to show us what's going on. And this is where Passover comes from. Because of the blood of the Lamb, the angel of death passes over their homes. And God says, I want you to celebrate this and remember what I did for you in Egypt, where I brought you out of Egypt. And God brings them out of Egypt 
and there's going to be another feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They basically have to go so quickly, word comes down, Pharaoh says, okay, get out of here, get out of my face. And so when they hear that word, it's like, okay, guys, we got to go now. They don't have time to bake regular bread, which takes time to rise, so they make something called unleavened bread, which is bread made without the yeast, and you basically just sort of knead it into a dough, and it's good to go. And people would take it when they had to travel in a hurry, so they make unleavened bread, And so there's another feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which also helps them remember that they were set free from Egypt. And that's also a part of Passover. The actual Passover was just the first day, and then it was followed by seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits is just a feast where everybody brings the first of everything they have, the first of their fruits from the field, maybe the first calf or lamb that's been born to their flock. The idea is that the first of everything belongs to God. And this is the time, one of the three times every year, when they would bring them to the temple as an offering to God. So everybody who's Jewish basically descends on Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus is going. This is where Jesus finds himself. So we're going to read through this whole text together to get the overview, and then we're going to break it down a little bit. So we've set the scene here. We're in Luke's Gospel. We're in chapter 2 of Luke. We're in chapter 2 of Luke. If you have one of our Bibles, your outline is stuffed exactly where you need to be. If you've lost your place, just check out the contents page and look for the book of Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. So chapter 2 of Luke, and we're going to start in verse 41. Speaking of Jesus, it says, His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they, Mary and Joseph, saw him, Jesus, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. And one of the first things you might notice in this story, it's one of the first things I notice when I read it is like, they are horrible parents. When you read this, you're like, seriously? You get an entire day away before you notice that your son is missing? I mean, that, that would be like me going to Lynn, Lynn Canyon or like Whistler with my family. And when, when I'm tucking the kids into bed that night, I go, wait a minute. Someone's missing, you know? You're like, what? How, how did this happen? But, but let me maybe paint the picture for you so you can understand how this works. So you have a whole bunch of people who have come from Nazareth to Jerusalem, and they all travel together in one big sort of party in one big group. And it was probably a lot safer than we realized. People were trustworthy because if you did shady things back then, you got killed. So people were generally a little bit better behaved in some of these villages, or they just stoned you to death. So they pretty much trusted 
pretty much everybody who was a part of their group traveling to Jerusalem. They were probably related to some of them. They were a tight group of people that did life together. Nazareth is not a big place. Everybody knew everybody, and they travel in one big group. Also, when they left, the women and children would actually normally leave about half a day before the men would. The men would stick around for some bro time for like half a day, and then they would catch up to them later on. So what's probably happened is Jesus is 12. It's right around 13 when you become a full-fledged member of the synagogue and, and still with the idea of a bar mitzvah in Judaism today, you become a young man at the age of 13. So Jesus is right around there. So what's happened is Joseph is thinking, oh, he's probably with his mom because he's a kid. And Mary's thinking, oh, he's probably with his dad because he's, he's pretty much a young man right now. And they both sort of overlook this the whole group leaves, and they just assume that he's somewhere in there. Jesus doesn't see, uh, Joseph doesn't see Jesus with Mary, but he goes, I'm sure he's somewhere in the crowd. Mary doesn't see him and says, oh, I'm sure, sure he's with his dad somewhere. So they're not terrible parents. It's just a classic miscommunication. And you can imagine, if you're a parent, you can imagine the sense of panic when they bump into each other. How's the journey been? They probably walk a while, and they're like, where's Jesus? What do you mean, where's Jesus? He's with you. I thought he was with you. And this panic sort of sets in. And if, if you're a parent, you know that feeling where you think you've lost your kid for even a second is the worst feeling in the world. You feel like you can't breathe. You're just overwhelmed with panic and fear. And it feels like someone's punched you in the gut at the same time. Now imagine that. And imagine being a day away. They're a day away. So they are frantic. And they're going back. It takes them a whole day to sort of make their way back to Jesus. So when you lose something or someone, where do you start looking? Where do you start looking? Most of us know quite simply the last place you saw them or the last place you saw that item. And how often do we do, we do this with church where, where we come here and we're glad Jesus is here and we leave and we leave Jesus here? We leave Jesus at church, and we come back the next week, and we're like, oh, good. He's still right where I left him, right at church, right where Jesus should be. But Jesus never intended for us to live that way. He intended for us to live in the awareness of him at all times because the truth is when we leave, he goes with us. He's with us. He's always faithful. The only issue is are we going to live in the reality that Jesus is with us, or are we going to live as though he's not? We have to make that choice. The Bible tells us that if we find ourselves far from God, the solution is remembering where we last saw Jesus. It's remembering where we last saw Jesus. How often is this? I, I talk about this all the time as a pastor, and this applies to me as well. You ever been in that place where, where you're like, man, I don't know what it is. It just feels like Jesus is so distant. He's so far away. And it's like, well, have, have you been talking to him? Uh, have you been in his words? You've been reading about him? You've been spending time with him? Well, no. But that's probably not what it is. And it's always what it is. It's always what it is for me. There's always this connection between how connected I feel to God and whether I've actually been connected to him. It sounds so simple, but this is the mistake we all make again and again and again. I feel distant from God, so I don't pray. Because that's going to help. I feel distant from God, so I'm going to skip church because that's going to make it better. And we just get in this snowball effect as though one day we're going to wake up and go, man, I just feel close to God today. Awesome. The Bible says, think about what you did the last time you felt close to God. 
and do those things again. What did you do when you felt close to God? Were, were you walking and you were just talking to him? You were sharing your thoughts with him in your mind? Were you in his word? Were you worshiping? Were you praying? Go do those things again and that's where you'll find Jesus again. And then keep doing those things. Keep doing those things. It's not rocket science, but we go through the cycle again and again and again. In verse 45, it said, So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Verse 46, Now so it was that after three days, and you might want to underline three days, three days they found him in the temple. So it took them a day to realize Jesus is missing to get back to Jerusalem. Then they had spent a whole day going away from Jerusalem. So it's two days before they really even make it back to Jerusalem. And they spend that third day looking for him. Sometime on that third day, they find him. It's really, really interesting to me that the only incident we have recorded of Jesus between the events of the Christmas story and the beginning of his ministry, we find him in Jerusalem celebrating Passover, God delivering his people from Egypt and from slavery. As we learned last week, Egypt in the Bible is, is always a picture of the world. Satan's kingdom, what Satan owns. So Passover represents God rescuing his people from the world. Rescuing his people from the world. So to put this in perspective, th this is kind of mind-blowing. Jesus is in Jerusalem celebrating Passover and three feasts that all point to him. He's in Jerusalem celebrating feasts and ceremonies and holidays that are all created to point to him. And nobody knows it. And he's there, right in the middle of it. Jesus is going to shed his blood as the Lamb of God so that we can be saved and be passed over by death and instead have eternal life. Jesus is going to free us through the cross from slavery to sin to guilt to shame, addiction to hopelessness to fear and everything else. And Jesus is the first fruits of the Father. He's the Father's only begotten Son. And the Father gives him to us. In fact, when he's around the age of 33, Jesus will find himself in Jerusalem again, around the time of Passover again. And this time the events will result in Jesus being killed on the cross. And this is on your outline. Years later, Jesus will again be lost for three days and found again on the third day. And that's not a coincidence. It's foreshadowing. It's a picture in the Bible pointing to what is going to come in the future. If we continue, it says, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions, verse 47, and all who heard him were, you might want to underline, astonished at his understanding and answers. Astonished. And in Hebrew religious culture, questions were everything. You could tell how good a teacher someone was by the questions they would ask. And that was their culture. And you could tell how wise a student someone was by the question they asked in response. They're very conversational, very good at making each other think through questions. And one of the things I found to be true in my life is that God is the best listener. He's the best listener. I don't know if you've ever poured out your heart to God, but God rarely, if ever, interrupts. He just listens. He just lets you pour out everything, and he listens. And then when you've calmed down a little bit, then he's like, okay, let's talk about this. But it doesn't matter how fumbling my words are. God, God listens, and he hears it all. I've also found in my life that God still asks 
the best questions. For me, it, it, it's usually me pouring out my heart. I'm mad, I'm frustrated, and I get to the end, and there's a moment of silence, and then God asks the best questions. And you can just sense the Holy Spirit saying, is that really what you want? Do you really believe that will make you happy? Do you really believe that will make anything better? Do you really believe it's them that needs to change? God asks the best, best questions. Have I ever let you down? He asks the best questions. So if you're carrying a burden, pour your heart out to God. He's the best listener, and he asks the best questions. And if we'll listen when he speaks, we too will be astonished at his understanding and answers. It says in verse 48, when they saw him, when Mary and Joseph saw Jesus, they were amazed. They were amazed. That word amazed is important because they don't see Jesus and go, oh, of course he's talking with the teachers. He's Jesus. He's kind of advanced for his age. They don't do that. They look at him and they're amazed. They're like, like you're conversing with the greatest religious scholars in the world and like hanging with them intellectually, like you're conversing. Like what's going on with Jesus? I don't know. They were amazed because his childhood had been so normal. It wasn't like Jesus was four and he's like, okay, family, gather around. I'm going to do a Bible study. Now, when I wrote this in the Bible, this is what I meant. He doesn't do that. He's just a normal, normal kid. So when they see Jesus doing this, they are amazed. It says, and his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have sought them anxiously. Again, if you're a parent, when you find your kid and you realize that, that they got lost because they weren't paying attention or something, don't report me to child services. I'm just saying this is how you feel. You simultaneously want to hug them and smack them at the same time. It's kind of like that. I'm so glad you're safe. Don't ever do that to me again. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're safe. I'll kill you if you do that. It goes back and forth like that. There's this surge of relief and emotions, and that's what's going on when Mary and Joseph find Jesus. They're like, I'm so glad I found you. How could you do this to us? Do you have any idea how worried we've been for the past two days? They are flipping out, and all the, all the emotions are coming out of Mary. And Jesus' response is basically, it's okay. It's meant to happen. It's okay. It's meant to happen. Like what, what kid says that, you know, this is meant to be. It's like you're 12 and you're a Calvinist. Really? You know, like I've never even heard of this. This is amazing. So years later, when Jesus has been murdered and buried, we know from the behavior of everyone during the three days that Jesus is in the grave, we know nobody thought this was the plan. Jesus taught it again and again and again. Jesus taught, I'm going to die. I'm going to be in the grave for three days. Then I'm going to come back to life. They're all like, yes, we get it. No, they didn't. Nobody got it. And we know this because when Jesus goes into the grave, his disciples scatter. Most of them go back to their jobs. Like they go back to fishing. They're like, oh, well, uh, that was a crazy three years. All right, let's go back to fishing. And that's where Jesus finds them. They've, they've gone back fishing. They've gone fishing. Other people mourn for Jesus like he's dead and not coming back. But nobody thinks this is meant to happen. Everything's going according to plan. Everyone thinks it's all, it's all falling apart. And the whole situation that we see with Jesus here plays itself out again around the time of his crucifixion and death. 
When Jesus is found by his parents, his explanation is in verse 49, and you want to underline this. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? What a verse. I mean, that verse is Jesus summed up. That is Jesus. It's the mission statement of Jesus Christ. I must be about my father's business. The mission statement of Jesus is, I've got to love everybody. The mission statement of Jesus is not, I've come to make everything that was wrong right. The mission statement of Jesus is, I must be about my father's business. That's what Jesus is all about. These are the first recorded words of Jesus Christ on the earth. And they are powerful. And Jesus isn't, isn't having an attitude or, or being insensitive. He's speaking pure truth about his relationship with God the Father. And there's also an element of preparation in here for Mary. Because years later, when Jesus dies, Mary is going to go through the same emotions again of how could you, how could you do this to us? What, what's going on? I don't think it's a stretch to believe that in, in those moments where she's in inner turmoil, Holy Spirit speaks to her and says, remember, he must be about his father's business. He must be about it. And that's what's going on here. Up to this point in time, nobody has ever referred to God the Father as my father, ever, in Scripture. God is this, this all-powerful being and he gets referred to in the Old Testament a few times as Father, but most of those times are, are sort of prophetic. They're talking about Jesus, what's to come. This is a completely foreign idea to anybody that God could be related to as our Father with that level of intimacy and closeness. This is a radical, radical idea. It's shockingly intimate. But Jesus shows us who God is. He's our Father. He's our Father. And in his first words, Jesus says, this is who God is. He's the Father. He's the Father. So how about you? What, how do you view God? You might know that Father is one of the names for God, but do you, do you view him as an all-powerful being who, who's somewhere out there, even if you believe in Jesus, somewhere out there? Or do you view him as your Father who has your best interests at heart? Your Father will protect you someone who will provide for you, someone who loves you unconditionally? Do you view God the Father that way, that intimately? If you want to know what God is like, he's the Father. He's, he's the perfectly good Father. And, and I know for some of us, sadly, the Father analogy is not a great analogy. Some of you might be thinking, man, if, if you want me to like God you might want to find a different analogy because the father one doesn't work for me. Maybe you didn't have a great dad. Maybe you had a dad who was impossible to please. Nothing you did was ever good enough for him. Maybe you had a dad who was never encouraging, who never believed in you, who was never for you, was always ready to point out your mistakes. A lot of us have issues with our dads. But listen to me, God is the good father. He's the good father. He's not meant to be kept at a distance and visited once a year out of obligation. He's made you to know him. He's made you to trust him with everything, your hopes, your fears, your secrets, everything. 
Bible says, among a hundred other things, that he's your defender, he's your encourager, he's your strength. Perhaps most amazingly, he's for you. He's for you. He's rooting for you. He's working behind the things to make, behind the scenes to make things work out in your favor. He, he's prepared good things for you before you were even born. That's the kind of father that he is. He's your father. Now let me take a minute to just talk to the men and the dads. Um, this is why what we do matters so much, so much. God's design is for us as fathers and husbands to reveal God the Father to our wives and to our kids, to our kids. Because we are in their lives, it should be easy for them to believe in a loving father, a caring father, a gracious father, an encouraging father, someone who's for them. That's our job, to make it easy for them to believe that. I want to be very, very blunt and ask the men, are you making it easier for your wife and for your kids to believe in that kind of God? Or are you making it more difficult? Are you creating a hurdle that they're going to have to leap over? Something they're going to have to get through. A barrier they're going to have to get past. Because their paradigm is you. An unloving father. Or are you revealing the heart of God the Father to your wife and to your kids? Can God still work in your life if you've come from a bad fatherhood experience where you didn't have a good dad? Yeah, he can. But for those of us who are here, don't, don't we all wish and hope and desire that our wives and our kids wouldn't have to overcome that barrier, wouldn't have to work through those issues? That that's of, of course he's a loving father. He's like my dad, just better, just better. That's why fatherhood matters so, so much. It's not a coincidence that with the epidemic of fatherlessness in our culture and in the world today. The message of Christianity just seems hard to grasp for so many people. So many people. You can do all the research into sociology if you want, but, but almost all violence that comes from young men all over the world, gangs all over the world in every culture is driven by fatherlessness, issues of fatherlessness, a void that was never filled. Low self-esteem in girls, father issues. Every time, every time, you know. That's not God's design. That's not God's design at all. So let's, let's reveal the Father to our families, men. Let's live up to the design and the calling that God has created and that God has given us. You know, in the Bible, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says 39 times just in John that he is God who was sent from heaven to the earth on a mission by God the Father. Jesus will only ever refer to God the Father as the Father during his ministry on earth, with one exception. When he's hanging on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. We don't have time to delve into it, but that is a small insight into the pain that Jesus went through on our behalf on the cross. Because in that moment, something we probably can't understand on the side of eternity changed in the way that the Father and the Son relate, in that moment, something changed. And he couldn't call him Father anymore in that moment. Just a small, small insight. The Bible tells us in Luke 22 that Jesus was praying, 
right before everything goes into motion for his crucifixion, before he's arrested, before he's beaten and whipped and put on trial multiple times. He's in a garden praying. And it says, and he was withdrawn from them, the disciples, about a stone's throw. So he goes a little ways away from the disciples. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So understand this. What motivated Jesus when it all came down to it was his love for the Father. It wasn't even us when it all came down to it. It was his love for the Father. You see, Jesus had, had spent an eternity experiencing intimately how wonderful the Father was. And he was so overwhelmed by how wonderful the Father was that he desired to obey the Father. He desired to do that. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? I must, I must be about my father's business. If we're gonna follow Christ, very simply, we must be about the father's business. We must. So don't miss this. To know the father is to love the father. And as you begin to know him, you'll realize that he's more wonderful than anything you've ever experienced or could ever hope to experience. Knowing the Father is the height of existence. It's, it's the pinnacle of everything. It's the best of everything. God's invitation to you and I is not, do all this stuff for me, and then I'll show you how wonderful I am. The model God created is, taste and see that I'm good. Come and experience how amazing it is to be loved by me. Come and experience what it's like to be adopted into my family and be called my son or my daughter. Then you'll know that anything I ask you to do is ultimately for your benefit. It's for your good. Then you'll know. Then you'll want to do what I ask you to do. You know, when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. He's not saying like, you don't love me if you don't do it. He's just saying, this is what you'll do. If you love me, you'll find yourself doing these things. You'll want to. It won't be a, a checklist or a sacrifice. You'll, you'll want to do it because you love me. Everything flows out of a relationship with the Father. Everything flows out of a relationship with the Father. And we see that with Jesus, but but again and again and again in our own lives, we go back to, now let me, let me do all this stuff and then I can experience the love of the Father. When the model that scripture has is, listen, come as you are to Jesus Christ. Experience his love, his compassion, his presence. Experience that and that will change you. That'll change you. That's, that's why when I talk to people about what's going on in their life, I try to be much more concerned about how we're doing in our relationship with God than whether or not we're acting like we're in a relationship with God. Because if you're in a relationship with God, that, that stuff takes care of itself. Everything that you need to change, the Holy Spirit will reveal to you and you'll want to do it. Living the old way will become less attractive. You, you'll develop a disdain for it. But it never works out if we're like, hey, I, I know you've just become a Christian, but it would make me feel better if you would act like you've been one your whole life. That would make me feel better if you could just go through the motions. I don't really care, you know, what your relationship with the Father is like. I just want you to act like it. And we buy into that all the time rather than saying, listen, if, you're, if your life is a wreck right now, a wreck, if there's so much you want to change about yourself, you don't know where to start. 
Focus on your relationship with the Father. Just focus on that. And the Holy Spirit will go to work. I promise. I promise that's how it works. And it's so much better that way. So everybody dismisses it when Jesus says, I must be about my Father's business. They, they can't even comprehend what they say. So they're just like, all right, kids say the darnest things. And Jesus' own disciples don't even understand his teachings when he tells them he's destined to die on the cross. They're pretty much just faking it. They're like, yeah, yeah. I totally understand that. Yeah, of course I get that parable. Do you understand what he's saying? No, I don't have a clue. They don't understand, and Jesus' parents don't understand what he's saying. You know, there's nothing in the psychological development of Jesus that Scripture tells us about. Scripture doesn't tell us if, like, he sort of had a gradual awakening that he was the Son of God, or if he had, like, an epiphany where one day it's just like, holy me, I'm the Son of God. You know, it's like we don't know how that, how that played out. But what we know is that when we find Jesus at the age of 12, he already knows that he's the Son of God. He knows who his Father is, and he knows that he's here on mission. He knows all that by the age of 12, and he lives with that. He lives with that. And so I think Jesus was wonderful to be around, but you talk about carrying a burden. He knew somewhere in the back of his mind that he wasn't just on the earth to have a good time and meet people and shake hands and kiss babies. He knew there was something coming. He knew there was something coming, and he lived with that all the way through his teen years. I mean, can you imagine his conversations with his friends where they're like, man, I'm, I'm really stressed. Like, do I, do I follow in my father's footsteps and become a fisherman? And Jesus, Jesus is thinking, yeah, I'm stressed too. Well, how come? Well, you know, I'm going to be crucified for all humanity. That's what I'm carrying. Jesus doesn't tell anybody. He just lives with that somewhere back deep in his heart. It says in verse 51, it says, Then he went down with them, Jesus went with his family, and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. That's worth underlining. He was subject to them. Guys again especially, but for everybody, guys especially. This is a big one. Is there any logical reason for Jesus according to the scriptures, to submit himself to the leadership of his parents, Mary and Joseph. He's smarter than them. He knows the scriptures better than them. <laughs> he probably has more scripture memorized. He has a closer relationship to the Father. He's holier than they are. Like, they really don't bring a lot to the table in this relationship, right? Right? There's not really a logical reason for Jesus to submit himself to them. They're, they're not qualified to provide leadership to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They're not qualified. So why does Jesus submit to their leadership? There's really only one answer you can come to. He submitted to their leadership because they were his parents, because of the position they occupied in his life, because of the office they held in his life. He doesn't honor them because they're qualified. He honors them because of the position they have in his life. And most of us were raised in democracies and not theocracies. So when you have a king or you have a dictator, like you get the idea, like, man, you show respect because they're the king. In the Western world, we're much, much more used to the idea of, you know what, we have elected officials and you work for me. And we're much more used to the idea of, I'll give you my respect if I think you deserve it. I'll be the judge 
of whether or not you deserve respect. And every day in our culture, we move further and further away from the idea of respecting positions of authority, regardless of who occupies them. But the model we have in Scripture is honoring and respecting the position way before the person, pretty much regardless of the person. Honoring Jesus is simply far more important than honoring your opinion. Honoring Jesus is far more important than honoring your opinion. So what this means is that (laughs) Jesus wants us to humble ourselves. The Father wants us to humble ourselves and respect even the boss who acts like an idiot. And you know why? Because even to that person, you represent Jesus. You represent Jesus. And you have an incredible opportunity to distinguish yourself from everybody else. Because if they're an idiot, everybody's probably treating them like they're an idiot. You have an incredible opportunity to make yourself different to everybody else. And this isn't just like a work thing. This is God's design for life. You don't respect your wife or your husband because they deserve your respect. They probably don't. And you don't really deserve their respect. You don't really deserve it. You're not as awesome as you think you are. I'm not as awesome as I think I am. Marriages fall apart when we start saying, I'm going to choose to respect you or not respect you based on your merits. That is the beginning of the end. Beginning of the end in marriage. Now, I always want to be clear when we talk about marriage, there are situations where you just need to get out. And I say that because I never want anyone who's in an abusive situation to hear something in church and say, my pastor told me this. We understand there are exceptional situations. But what I'm talking about is situations where marriages crumble simply because we decide, I got a list of pros and cons, and guess what? Your cons are outweighing your pros. Ergo, I will not respect you. That's the beginning of the end. That is the beginning of the end. They deserve your respect and your love because of the position you hold. You, as a parent, deserve the respect of your children because you are their parent. You are their parent. That's how you parent, understanding God gave you that office. And your boss, your employers, government officials deserve our respect because that's the office they hold. That's the office they hold. And here's what we find. We find that it's impossible to live your whole life disrespecting everybody, showing honor and respect to no one, and honoring God. You will never find the person who effectively honors God and dishonors everybody else because you're just not in the pattern. You're just not in the pattern. Paul even tells people, this is one of the most shocking things in Scripture. Paul, when the church is coming to life, slavery is still going on all over the world. Paul understands, listen, this is about the gospel. And it's going to take a long time for the gospel to permeate every part of society. But in the future, the gospel will penetrate into issues like slavery. But this is like year seven of the church. So we just need to be getting the gospel out right now. So he understands we're not going to abolish slavery seven years into the existence of Christianity. So he tells people who are slaves, he says, he says listen, submit to your masters. Show them Jesus. Not because they deserve your respect. They don't deserve your respect. They've enslaved you. They don't deserve your respect. But honoring Jesus is way more important than honoring your opinion. Glorifying the gospel. Glorifying God. So I want to challenge you to think about that in the way that you interact with people in positions of authority. It's challenging to me as well. 
Back to verse 51, it says, But his mother, Mary, kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. We're going to head into a time of about 20, 25 minutes of worship and prayer and communion. There's going to be communion available in the back. You can go and take that. But I want to ask you to just be open this morning to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. We had a couple of different points, but I believe that the Holy Spirit is speaking, someone, speaking something to every single person in this room, and we want to be open to what that might be. I believe for all of us there's something the Holy Spirit's pointing out. Maybe, maybe for you, you realize, man, I, I just can't wrap my head around the idea of God as a father, as the good father, the close father, the father who puts an arm around me and walks with me and is for me is on my side. I can't even wrap my head around that. Maybe you just need to ask God to show you. Just say, help me, help me understand and let God speak to you. Maybe as you look at your life, if you're honest, you can't say that your life is about the Father's business. It's not about the Father's business. Maybe there's something God wants you to refocus in your life so that you can put him first. Uh, maybe you need grace to represent Jesus to some people who don't really deserve your respect, but who Jesus has called you to respect. And if Jesus can respect Mary and Joseph as the Son of God, then we can live up to that calling as well. Communion is available to remind you that Jesus was the Lamb of God who was slain so that you could be saved and put in relationship with the Father. I encourage all of you, take communion at some point during the next 20, 25 minutes. Remember how much God loves you. Let it remind you that he loves you. He loves you enough to die for you and bring you into relationship with the Father. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you during this time. Would you, would you bow your head and close your eyes?